Today, we at Wicked Good Development have a special treat for you. We are celebrating World Open Source Day, a day of celebration for the hard work and dedication done in the open source community and an opportunity to come together and share knowledge and experiences. At Wicked Good Development, we thank open source maintainers and contributors for their endless pursuit in showcasing the power of open collaboration for the advancement of technology. Here is one contributor's story. Hi, my name is Katie Grigg, and welcome to another episode of Wicked Good Development, where we talk shop with OSS innovators, experts in the industry, and dig into what's happening in the developer community. Hi, my name is Teresa Mimerell, and I'll be your co-host today. I work as a developer advocate at Sonotype, and I've been involved in the open source Java space for about five years now in JDK development, and now currently helping open source projects secure their code bases and third-party dependencies. Today we have a great episode lined up for you. Today we have Tom Cools coming to us from Antwerp, Belgium. So Tom, before we get into the conversation today, for the listeners at home, can you give an introduction of yourself? Ooh, introducing myself, always a weird moment. Uh, so hi everyone, I'm Tom Cools. It's unfortunately not pronounced Cools, it's Cools. It's C-O-O-L-S. People told me that I shouldn't say that, I should just keep it a secret because, yeah, whatever. Um, I'm a software developer for nine years now at a company called InfoSupport. I did my internship there. I'm kind of kept hanging. Uh, it's a consultancy firm, so I get sent all over the place. I've done pretty big projects for the financial industry, for the, the shipping industry, quite a lot of different stuff, which I quite, kind of enjoyed. And uh, I'm also a trainer and coach at InfoSupport, so sometimes we give trainings and then they allow me to teach Java for a day or Docker for a day. So uh, it's, a, it's a nice switch between being able to do consultancy and teach a bit. And next to that, I uh, occasionally speak at conferences because that's what I like to do, share my knowledge and just yeah, enjoying life as best as I can while also helping a lot of other people. Well, thanks for being here. Let's dive in. So Tom, I recently had the privilege of watching you present actually at DevOps Belgium uh, a couple months back. And I wanted to, before we get into more of the open source stuff, but just get a better understanding of how you move from having a teaching degree and being, you know, a coach, trainer, Java developer, guru. How did I do the switch? Well, I did my teaching degree when I was, well, it takes three years. So I was 18 when I started it. It was 21 when I graduated from my teacher's degree. And I was looking around and, you know, you know, what kind of teachers I appreciate the most? That, that's the people who have, like, work field experience. So I did high school. I did three years before my teacher's degree. I graduated as a teacher. And I was like, okay, am I going to teach for the rest of my life? I'm 21. I don't know how life works. Uh, <laughs> so I decided, you know what, I want to do something else first. So uh, the, the last year of my teacher's degree, because I'm allowed to teach IT uh, subjects, which means Word, Excel, PowerPoint, excellent, good stuff. Uh, but they also showed us two lessons of JavaScript. And I was like, you know, I actually like this a bit more than the teaching part. So then I went into my IT degree, and that's how I, the ball kind of got rolling. So uh, that's kind of the switch. I just felt I wasn't ready to go into education yet because I was too young, didn't know anything about the world, and I don't want to stand in front of a bunch of students, a bunch of kids, basically, and tell them this is how the world works. Well, I've never seen the world. I was just inside education all the time. And then when, when I was finishing up my IT degree, I had to find an internship. 
and the company I work at now, InfoSupport, they, since they also provide training, uh, it was a nice mix for me because I still love teaching, I love sharing knowledge, but InfoSupport does consultancy and training, so I was able to, to mix my two passions, basically. And that's also when uh, I started going to conferences and sharing my knowledge there because it's kind of the same as teaching. It's a bit more unidirectional, but if you've seen some of my sessions, I try to include the audience quite a lot and make it like a, a fun experience for everyone. I honestly think that's the best part of watching you present is just how you make it so relatable and interactive, asking the audience questions or even using, you know, the plushie um, <laughs> as the example, right? Yeah, that's going to have to have to be explained at some point, but a, a link to the video in show notes, because <laughs> just say, oh, yeah, you use a plushie on stage. That's going to raise a few questions with the audience. That is a fair point. I will make sure <laughs> to do that. Um, so... You know, you mentioned how you moved over to to Java at InfoSupport and how that internship really grew. How did you, you know, you've you've been in this space for quite some time now, but what was really like your first working project with open source? My first working project with open source, you mean actually working on open source software or being involved in like having to select an open source framework? Being involved. We'll go with that one. Uh, being involved. That was... A while ago, when when I think about six years ago, when microservices first started to pop up, there were a few frameworks that were really focused on how do I deploy a Java application uh, without having a separate web application server. So it used to be you need an, an IBM WebSphere server or you needed a Tomcat server. Now you were uh, creating WAR files instead of JAR files, and the WAR files need to be handed over to a different team, and they need to install the WAR files. But the, when microservices came, I was like, this is not something, if you want to do microservices, that's not a, a good approach to do it. So you got these frameworks that actually had runnable JAR files. It's, it's so common now with Spring Boot and, uh, and MicroProfile, uh, uh, Micronaut and, and Quarkus that you have a runnable JAR, but it didn't used to be standard a couple of years ago. Oh. And the first framework I actually got involved with was called Drop Wizard, which was... If I get it correctly, it was a Tomcat server that was packaged together with your code in a runnable jar file. So you just had to Java jar and then your jar file and it would start the entire application server. So it was my uh, interest in microservices actually led me to Drop Wizard. Uh, but there was one thing that was missing in that Drop Wizard library and that was support for WebSockets. And then my first uh, open source contributions was making a plugin for drop wizard that allows you to use websockets with drop wizard with this framework to create microservices which is pretty cool because i've never contributed anything to open source besides some comments but i'm not even going to mention uh, the documentation while that's valuable my, i consider my first real contribution to be the plugin for drop wizard that's really impressive i actually went to a, a session at all day devops where they were talking a lot about, like you mentioned, open source contributions and sort of starting with what a lot of people do, which is documentation and that kind of sort of small contribution. So mm -hmm. what do you think was the biggest challenge for you in making that gap between sort of smaller fixes towards a feature like that when, when contributing to open source? What was the biggest thing? It was more, I do a lot of things either out of... Uh, really being hyped about it or being really angry about it. That's how most of my conference sessions start. 
And uh, for Drop Wizard, it was a frustration. Like I liked the framework, but it just didn't have this one feature. So I started looking into how can I can I implement it. So then I switched from, uh, you know what? I have enough experience now. Uh, I think I was working for two years. And then I felt, okay, I can probably do this. Let's, let's just give it a try. And it turned out to be, yeah, it turned out just to work for me. Which doesn't mean, uh, I don't want to come off as documentation isn't valuable. It's a very good way to contribute to open source and uh, make your first steps, get to know the software a little bit. But it, it's still a, a little extra spark when it's code that you're submitting. Like, you know, that whenever someone uses this framework now or this library, that it goes through something that you've written. A little bit daunting, but very cool to know, like, oh, this library has... 10,000 daily users, and you know that you've made some impact. Absolutely. Well, I think it is like in your talk, how you have that sort of circle of learning where you have to start learning just one thing that you don't know, where I think starting an open source, you want to do something that's easier so you can sort of understand the culture that is contributing and participating before you also apply the skills that you already have, but you might need to learn a new code base and things like that. Yeah, exactly. And I think we uh, kind of underestimate what it takes to contribute to open source because you need to know Git. Just as a start, if you, if you start developing, you need to know Git to do any kind of contribution, even the documentation. So if you've never contributed to open source, I would really recommend to just uh, to, to do some documentation changes and see how the entire process works. How do they accept merge requests? Uh, do I need to submit an issue first or can I just change it? Uh, people will point you to the contributions.md file, so you have to read that and kind of get uh, get up to speed with it. Uh, the only thing that I... So I have, I have a new conference talk that I've given once, and it's about... Uh, it's partially about onboarding people. And we think about onboarding when people join a project, but we don't think about onboarding a lot when it comes to open source. And there's one this one thing that's been happening the past couple of years, and I don't know if you've seen it, but it's those labels good for starter, good first issue. But if you really look at those good first issues, it's not always that good. I saw a couple that literally said, uh, replace Postgres, the direct connection with PG Bouncer. One line. And the label, good for starter. And I was like, if a starter sees this, so, so as, a, as an industry, we're trying to motivate people to contribute to open source. And then there's projects that do that kind of stuff. And the starter goes, oh, I've learned I can contribute to open source. I'll look at the issue. Oh, this is really hard. I don't even know what this is saying. So we need to, I think, as, a, as the open source community, we can be a bit better in helping onboard new people and not just slap the good first issue label on everything. But uh, I think what would really help is uh, actually writing almost pseudo code in the issue and then say, this is a good first issue, just implement these steps and actually write it out. It's a bit tricky because contributors just want to close issues or, or uh, sometimes are very focused on closing issues, issues, issues. And if it's a small change, they think, oh, but I can do that in five minutes. Let me just look, merge request, and it's finished. But if you want a really good first issue, it's those simple things. You write out the pseudocode and then you say, this is a good first issue. Look, this I fully described what you need to implement. If you still need help after reading my description, basically uh, a sort of tutorial on doing a small change, then uh, that, that could be very valuable for people starting out with open source. Yeah, I think that's a really great tip. A lot of the things I see with those kind of first 
contribution labels are either they're from four years ago and nobody bothered to do them. And so you're like, is this even relevant anymore? Or they're not complex enough to really help you understand the code base, which is the whole point. So I think that's that's a really interesting suggestion of giving sort of a halfway, here's how I would approach the problem. So you can kind of help somebody dive in and get to know the project better. Yeah, yeah, because you still need to be careful because you say uh, the issues don't dive deep enough to uh, get to know the code base. But I think uh, the, uh, it's implementing an issue like that to get to know the code base is asking a lot from the contributor. They first need to read the code base, understand the code base, and then apply a change. And I think it's quite valuable to just give them a list of this is the steps that you need to do. Just do these things and you'll touch a few pieces in the code base. And next time you'll be ready to uh, explore it a bit deeper. Uh, and I think most of those labels, as you say, sometimes they're so old. Uh, I think instead of good first issue, it should say, uh, we're desperate. Uh, nobody has picked up this, this issue in four years, which is desperate. So please, uh, please someone pick it up. But it's not a good, it's quite often not a good first issue. Exactly. <laughs> Do you often see issues like that that are super outdated, like four, four years old or just waiting for someone to, for desperate help? Uh, yeah, but the, uh, I must say, I don't see a lot of them that are labeled as a good first issue. I see them as uh, either uh, they're not relevant enough to pick up or there hasn't been time to pick it up when or sometimes quite literally we, the open source owner, doesn't know the answer to the issue. We can't find it and then it stays open. That's a possibility. So after Drop Wizard, where does your open source journey take you next and, and what's it look like now? So... For me, uh, I'm a consultant, so open source basically means that I have the option if I have a, an issue in a framework, I can go to the framework and uh, list an issue. I can try to do a pull request if it's well simple enough for me to not have to spend two weeks to learn the code base of the open source project, uh, unless if I really have the time. Uh, so that's the biggest part for me. And then open source some of my, my silly... So, so whenever I show code on a conference talk, that's also open source. I just dump all my knowledge in the repository and share it with other people. Because for me, putting things online and sharing the code is a good way to, to allow people access to what you're thinking. And uh, it, it really enhances blog posts as well and videos that you make showing some code that really... Uh, uh, it, it just gives them a different dimension. It gives them way more information than they would otherwise have from your blog post because you can't, it's a bit tricky to copy paste all the code in there and then being able to navigate it. Uh, and besides that, I'm quite a silly pants. So I like to make weird little experiments and then put them online. And uh, I think the one that I like the most because you're, uh, you both work at Swanotype. So that's kind of security dependency based. Uh, so my most start GitHub project. Are you familiar with a Rickroll? Yes. I think it is so funny and I have had several people do it to me, but every time I giggle when you see that video. Yeah, well, uh, you know, uh, when you have a new hacker uh, and they go uh, to their browser, they see, I have a website, I'm going to type slash wpadmin.php just to see if the admin page of a WordPress site is available or something. Uh, they, they will try to not, not really hack, but just see, is something really open here? 
So what I did is I made a Spring Boot plugin, a Spring Boot starter, and you can configure paths or extensions like .php. And when someone goes to your server and someone types wadmin.php, well, you know it's a Spring Boot application, so it's never going to serve any PHP. Then it redirects you to Rickroll. <laughs> That's all the starter does. That the, is amazing. And the great <laughs> thing is that it was it wasn't originally my idea, but I was uh, someone else implemented it for Node, I believe, and I was like, ah. I actually always wanted to know how to make a Spring Boot starter. This seems like a good use case to make a Spring Boot starter. That is uh, amazing. And I put it online and I said, open for a contribution. It was actually my way to kind of test out what do I need to give other people so that they would contribute to this as well. Like what kind of guidance do they need if they want to contribute to this? And uh, <laughs> two weeks later, I had a merge request from someone from the Spring team to uh, add additional features to uh, to my little library. So that's, that was really fun. <laughs> it was really fun. And then uh, a, a while ago, um, someone told me, you know what? Uh, have you heard of Gitpot before? It's like something where you can have an online uh, development environment. And uh, now if you go to that page, uh, I can show it to you later maybe, uh, is there's one button that says open in Gitpot. And when you click the button, the browser opens a remote desktop where you can actually change the code and create a pull request in the browser. So you don't have to install anything locally. You don't have to install uh, any IDE. You don't have to install Docker. Whatever you need is in that Git pod. And it's just one button away. You click it and it, it opens. And that's a, a real enabler for uh, open source projects, I believe, because one of the challenges that some people have with contributing to open source is just setting up their local environment. I, like, it's the same when you go to a new project. It's like, here is the list of 50 things you need to install before you can write a line of code. But you can script that in Gitpod, and it will actually just start up a virtual server in the cloud somewhere. And it's ready to go, can start working, and you don't have to worry about all the setup. So that's one of the things that I added to that repository as well. So you learn a lot if you try to open source things from, from the other side, you know, when you try to open source some of your code. Yeah, I love the idea of contributions being easier. And actually yesterday I made a contribution to a readme for a project. And so I just used how you can go on the actual website instead of using Git. And it actually created the forked branch for me automatically, which I have never seen before. So I don't know if that's a newer feature. You mean but... the GitHub website then, right? Yeah, I just, I went yeah. into edit and then it just automatically made it instead of me having to do it. So I don't know if that's been around for a while, but I was very excited about yeah, it. I noticed it yesterday as well. It's probably one of the the, the easiest contributions you can do. You yeah. see a, a spelling mistake in the readme file, or you see that someone uses a made me clean install, which you shouldn't be using people, uh, then you can easily change it without even having to open an ID. So Yeah, I love that it's getting even easier. So what other tips do you have for maintainers to make their projects more accessible for new contributors? So uh, you, you both have seen my session, so I'm going to give a bit of context for the people who wouldn't have seen my session. To, to backpedal a little bit, I have, my, I have a teacher's degree. So while learning to become a teacher, you learn a lot about learning and teaching. One of the concepts that they told you to tell you about is uh, Lev Vygotsky's zone of proximal development, which is a very uh, simple model that basically states there's a few things that you know now, 
And based from where you are now, there's a couple of things that you can learn and there's a couple of things that you can't learn. For example, if right now you know how to do uh, simple math, two plus two, then you can probably learn multiplications, but thinking of some kind of weird uh, algorithm or formula that will send us to the moon is going to be too complex to learn. You need to take certain steps. And that's always what your teachers help you with. And I think when you're trying to onboard someone, if it's open source or if it's just a, a regular project, sounds a bit demeaning, but a project uh, at a company, uh, then I think it's really valuable to take that into account. First, look at someone comes on board. Okay, what do they already know? Do they know Java? Do they know Maven? To what degree do they know those two things? Because if you have a starter, uh, for example, I had a starter who had never used Spring before. He knew Java very well. He knew uh, Quarkus really well, but we use Spring. So then if, if you know where they are, then you can use that information to help them learn Spring. For example, most of the annotations are just slightly different when you're doing REST controllers in Spring or in Quarkus. But that's something that you can use. You can really use what they already know. Now, in open source, this is a bit more difficult because you don't know who is going to onboard on your project. But what I think is really relevant there is prerequisites. And I think even on those good to get started issues, it could be valuable to add, hey, if you want to do this, we probably expect you to know something about Docker, if it's a Docker-related issue in your open source project. Or we expect you to at least know this and this feature in uh, the Java language. I think that's one of the first ones. Really scope, make it clear to the people who want to onboard, what do you need to know? And if you want to go one step further, and here is where you can learn those things if you are only starting out in, in Java. For example, one of the courses that I often share is, I don't know if you know Angie Jones, a Java champion. She's amazing and she has probably the best, uh, or at least one of the best uh, pre-Java courses online. So when I have someone that's like, oh, I want to learn some Java by, by contributing to open source, I usually tell them, uh, take some time to learn some Java first, and here's a free course by Angie. So uh, even when you see that people want to contribute to open source, try to get the bar as low as possible. Uh, I think that's probably the main thing. Keep the bar as low as possible. And uh, actually, I read this book by uh, Felina Hermans, which is called The Programmer's Brain. And she has an entire section on how to onboard people uh, in a better way. I don't know everything by heart, but one of the things she says is, read code give people just the exercise summarize this piece of code because when you are asked to work on something like uh, change something in the code like really contribute to an issue you're asking a lot from them you're asking them to read the code to understand the codes the just the lines of code then but you're also asking them to understand the structure of the code and then you're asking them please change something here which is quite a lot to put in, in your head. Like there's only so much processing power that our brains have to, to deal with this. So even there, uh, having code reading exercises, just say, just read this piece of code and see if you can make a summary. I know that this feels really weird because it doesn't directly contribute to the open source project, but it can really help to onboard people to your open source project. Say, uh, here's a piece of code, and I'm going to explain you now what this piece of code exactly does. Because I was thinking about this a bit more, and I was like, maybe, and this is just an idea, maybe we could have live coding sessions, like 
on Twitch, I'm going to work on this issue and I'm going to uh, explain it like the people who are listening are five. Uh, explain it like I'm five, the expression. Uh, but I'm going to do it on a Twitch stream and hopefully someone sees it. And then you can tell them, hey, this was kind of how this piece of the code works. If you're interested in helping with that piece of the code, you can come on board and we can further help you as well. So if, if there's like a bigger code base and you have specific things where you want help from the open source community, it could really help to make a short tutorial just explaining that piece of the code base and then saying, hey, this issue, and maybe then label it with this is for user management and you make a user management video that shortly explains how user management works. It doesn't have to be a video, it could also be a, a blog post, but something that really helps them to understand, not just say, uh, <laughs> pull requests are welcome, was another comment that I often see on, uh, on issues. And that just doesn't work. You're asking them to do so much effort. They already made the effort to, to submit an issue maybe, then be kind to those people that come and try to help you out. Yeah, that makes sense. I think just like in, if you're joining a team, there's a certain amount of onboarding effort that needs to happen to make someone successful. And that's should really be the same as in open source as well. Yeah, and, and the thing that I see most frequently is someone new joins a project. What's the first thing they have to do? Solve a small bug. Oh, we have a small bug for you. We preserved it for you. Well, what that means is read our entire code base try to figure out how it works and then fix the issue. But then all the things they need to learn in that short period of time, I've seen people just basically flip, especially like uh, when someone comes straight out of school, a, a junior developer, so someone that just starts with their IT career, you give them that task, they feel stupid. And they feel stupid because they are just overwhelmed. And I'm saying they feel stupid because they're not stupid. They just have been given a task that makes them feel yeah, inferior, especially if you then have like a nasty lead developer that says, oh, but it's just a book, just. That word is, is really killing. It's just a book. It's not that difficult. See, I'll do it for you in one minute. But the lead dev knows the entire code base, knows the entire structure. So as I said, most things I do start from a rant. This is kind of the rant that I'm doing in my next conference talk. So uh, <laughs> it's kind of related. But I think it applies to this, especially applies to open source as well. We need to be friendlier towards the people that actually want to come help and don't put them in situations where they feel stupid just because we didn't explain things or didn't onboard them properly. And I, I think that's a great thing to in everyday life, though, too. You know what I mean? Whether you're onboarding a new company, joining a new sports team that you do. I mean, anything in life is what you can really apply that to. It's just leading with some compassion for people who are new to it. Yeah, definitely. And, and uh, I, I like the term setting someone up for success, like doing everything possible so that they are successful. Even if that takes, uh, even if that means taking a step back and going a bit slower for, for one sprint, just to make sure that they're decently onboarded, that just lasts long, a lifetime almost. I think it's great that you're talking about this because there certainly is this strange culture that we have in software where you sort of you have to pay your dues. You have to suffer through those first few bugs when you join a team. And it doesn't have to be like that. Yeah, you have to suffer as much as the rest of the team is suffering to be a real developer. Yeah, you put it cruelly. That, that's so, so much nonsense. We should be better than this. We should be helping, especially 
Uh, and I have kind of a soft spot for this, but there's a lot of people in our industry that feel like they're not welcome, uh, especially uh, women or, um, or non-binary people that already feel like kind of shunned based on your gender, but also people that graduated at a boot camp instead of formal education, people that join our industry later. Now, what are we, what are we doing with, when we onboard? We, quite often, we make them feel more stupid and feel like they don't belong. And that's something that's just so disastrous for, our, for us as an industry. We should be way more welcoming and way more trying to make sure that people succeed instead of leaving them somewhere to suffer because we want suffered or for whatever reason that you might have. Absolutely. There can be a balance. I know, I think the most successful success I've had onboarding a newer developer was been not assigning them a bug at first, but assigning a very small and very manageable feature. And then when they finished it, they were so excited that they didn't mind starting to do the bugs as much because it is valuable to, to solve bugs, but there needs to be some positive feelings there too, especially for your, your volunteers at that point you've, you've already validated them that they're valid and that they belong but if you go, go into some kind of company and they don't give you a uh, a decent onboarding at all and they just let you work on features but you don't understand the code base and nobody wants to help you like what does it do to like i've seen people quit our industry because of that and that makes me so angry that i talk on stage about it and <laughs> and almost ran to the, to the audience. But it, it, it's something that, that's really uh, struck a nerve for me to see good people leave our industry because, yeah, we just don't, don't care enough about each other, I think, in some ways. So, Tom, we, we're kind of at time, and we've talked about a few different topics here today, but I would like to get your final thoughts. You know, it, under the lens of today's conversation, what would you say is wicked good development to you? What is wicked good development? It's a really good question. I'd say wicked good development is development that inflicts no pain to the developer creating it and anyone who has to work on it afterwards. And you can even flip it to uh, from no pain that gives a good feeling to whoever has to work on the code base. And that could be the next developer that you onboard on your team. It could be the maintenance team that takes over after two years and the project team just goes, yep, over the wall. Here you go. Good luck with it. If those people still have a good feeling when they see your code base, then you've done some wicked good development. Beautiful. Well, Tom, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. We really enjoyed speaking with you. You're welcome. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Wicked Good Development, brought to you by Sonatype. Our show was produced by me, Katie Gregg. If you value our open source and cybersecurity content, please share it with your friends and give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Check out our transcripts on Sonatype's blog and reach out to us directly with any questions at wickedgooddev at sonatype.com. See you next time. Wicked.